You are listening to the Canadian Bar Association National Magazine. Hi, I'm your host, Eve Figui, and the editor-in-chief of CBA National Magazine. Welcome to After the Pandemic, where we discuss emerging issues in law in a world transformed. Many of the rights enjoyed by workers in Canada today, from minimum wages to workplace safety standards and collective bargaining rights, were won last century. Our employment and labour laws were in fact designed to respond to problems faced by a workforce facing very different challenges than it does in today's increasingly global and digital economy. And over the past few months, the pandemic has highlighted some uncomfortable truths, namely that it's perhaps time to rethink worker protections so that they help not only people with standard and normal jobs, but those working in the gig economy. The question is, do we need to create new employment categories and new rules around organized labor, for example, that are more fit for purpose in this economy? This month on the podcast, we're discussing employment and labor law with York University law professor David Dury. He has written extensively on a range of topics in Canadian and comparative labor and employment law and industrial relations. He is the author of The Law of Work, taught in universities and colleges across Canada. The second edition, I believe, is now available. And he is a regular commentator on developments in his field on his award-winning Canadian Law of Work forum blog, which he started in 2008. So we're really pleased to have him here today. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. David, help us first with the big picture. We hear a lot about how employment and labor laws are stuck in the past. So how would you describe the challenges we're facing today? And has the pandemic uh, shone a light on some of these lingering issues that we're going through? Okay. Uh, well, that's a good opening question, and I'm going to take a bit of time to answer it because I think it probably sets up uh, some of the issues we're going to talk about today. Um, and I'm, I'm going to leave the the question of the pandemic aside for the moment, come back to that if that's okay. Sure, no problem. If you begin with the observation that virtually all of the laws that we use to regulate work today were designed in the 20th century to address 20th century problems, Now, many of those problems remain today, obviously, but there's new problems and some of the old problems have evolved. And so we're talking about the entire range of legislative standards that are designed to protect vulnerable employees. And so we're we're talking about minimum employment standards, health and safety laws, workers' comp, unemployment insurance, and so forth, as well as collective bargaining legislation. Okay, so if you trace the origin of all of those types of statutes... What you find is that each of them came about as a government response at a particular moment in time to struggles by workers and sometimes unions who were confronting distinct failings in the common law model, which of course is dominated by the idea of freedom of contract. And we know, and it's certainly a big part of the way we think about employment and labor law, that freedom of contract usually permits the more powerful party to insist upon contract terms that favor its own interest. Uh, And so in the employment setting, we usually think of the fact that the employer is often able to set the conditions of work and there's not a lot of bargaining that goes on at the individual level. And so the evolution of 20th century labor and employment law is a story about workers resisting that power in attempts to win better working conditions. But those battles took place mostly in the first three quarters of the 20th century. 
And therefore, it's not surprising that the legal models that emerged reflected the labor market concerns of that period, right? And so the question then is, well, what were those concerns and how do they relate to the problems we're facing today? Well, if you go back to the 1940s and the 1950s, the, the biggest problems confronting employers and governments at that time were strikes and resistance by mostly male workers employed in large industrial workplaces, you know, the car plants and the steel mills and the mines and the like. So governments designed labor laws to control that conflict and to channel it into a tightly regulated system of collective bargaining rules. Right, that granted workers the rights to collective bargaining and forced their employer to come to the bargaining table whenever a majority of employees at one of those big workplaces uh, decided they wanted a union. And in exchange for that, the law also restricted the legal right of workers to strike. And so only workers who were employees and who were re represented by a union that represented a majority of employees could legally strike. And this model became known as the Wagner Canadian Magner, Wagner model because it borrowed a lot of key elements from the American Wagner model that had been adopted in 1935. Okay, so if you flash forward then to, you know, the period after that those laws were introduced, what you see is that the, the Wagner model worked really well um, for what it was intended to do, which was to facilitate and regulate collective bargaining in large industrial workplaces, right? So most of our factories and our mines and our forestry workers unionized and through those unions were able to bargain pretty decent living wages and benefits and pensions and a healthy middle class emerged um, in Canada under that model. Now, at the same time, governments introduced a menu of statutory standards over the 20th century to protect non-union workers who worked in other sectors, right? So they weren't in the big industrial sectors. They were in small workplaces, in white-collar workplaces, service jobs, retail jobs, jobs that were staffed mostly by women and by new immigrants and young people. And these standards were secondary to the main policy objective of our governments through the middle decades of the 20th century, which was to promote a family wage earned by a male breadwinner. So, you know, my brilliant colleague, Judy Fudge, who's now at McMaster, famously described regulatory standards as labor law's little sister. And what she meant by that is that the collective bargaining laws that we focused all our attention on were primarily for men working in heavy industry. And the rest of labor standards were for non-union workers, mostly women, right? And so some of the workers with the worst working conditions were excluded entirely from our illegal infrastructure, right? So if you think about agricultural workers and domestic workers. So these regulatory standards were set low and enforcement was lax because workers in these other jobs weren't considered essential to the social and economic order of Canada. The main job of our labor and employment laws through much of the middle 20th century was to facilitate you know, a male breadwinner model. Other anything the other workers earned, you know, anything women earned was primarily gravy. It was pin money. Now, let me bring you back to your your question, which is how does that model fit today and why are we always talking about employment and labor laws being stuck in the past? Well, the 21st century labor market landscape looks a lot different than the landscape of the mid-20th century. Right. The share of workers employed in those large manufacturing workplaces has declined significantly. Most Canadian employees today work in smaller workplaces, not those big factories and mines. 
Uh, our collective bargaining model, which was designed in the 40s to facilitate collective bargaining in those large workplaces, not surprisingly, doesn't work very well as a model for organizing workers in small offices and retail stores or workers who work at home or more recently who work on a bicycle or out of their car. Right. So as a result, union density in the private sector has been declining for years from nearly 30% in the 1980s to only about 15% today. So that's a substantial loss of bargaining power for Canadian workers. And it's not surprising that that loss of bargaining power is reflected in a declining share of income that's going to workers and also to increasing uh, income inequality in Canada. And, and here's the other thing. With 85% of Canadian private sector workers now non-union, the regulatory standards regime that was originally designed as a fallback safety net to provide basic minimum standards for workers excluded from the main collective bargaining model is now the principal legal means by which we protect workers in Canada. So, as a result, uh, people are noticing a lot more than before the huge gaps in statutory coverage and other problems such as weak enforcement that have always characterized the regulatory regime, but that were mostly ignored because those standards were supposed to be for the tertiary sector, right, which was considered secondary. And so when, when the basic floor of rights begins to become the de facto ceiling for millions of Canadian workers, then the abysmal levels of noncompliance and our government's lack of interest in enforcement has become a glaring public policy, a problem that is being discussed in our legislatures. Right? And, and finally, almost all of the legal rules that we created in the 20th century to protect workers applied only to one type of work which dominated the labor market at the time, and that's employment, right? But especially over the last quarter century, employers have realized that they can avoid this entire legal infrastructure that was designed to protect employees by restructuring work and calling workers contractors. And so as the percentage of workers classified as contractors has increased, there's been greater attention directed to the question of why we use these technical 20th century tests for employment status as the gatekeeper to access uh, to so many of our laws and benefits that are designed to make people's lives better. So that's a long-winded answer to your first question about uh, you know labor laws being stuck in the past. So, so it's interesting, uh, everything that you're saying here. And one of the other things that we're noticing, uh, or that, you know, has increasingly entered the conversation is this whole emergence of the gig economy. And I don't, yeah, I mean, nobody seems to really agree on the size of what the gig economy is. I've seen stats in the U S that seem to vary between seven to 35% of total employment. I've seen figures in Canada peg the online gig economy at like around six or 7%. Those I think are 2017 numbers. Though I'm hearing people say that that grossly underestimates its real size. But I guess the question is, is where does that fit in in what you're uh, describing? And how much has the emergence of the gig economy uh, started to influence uh, our views for uh, reforming, for the need for reforming our, our employment and labor laws? Right. Well, this is the, the million dollar question. You know, those of us in labor and employment law academia have a have a drinking game at conferences where you, you have to take a drink every time someone uh, talks about gig work. Um, <laughs> and, you know, of course, we've had gig workers forever. Right. Whether you're talking about performers and artists or writers or 
taxi drivers, artisans, and so forth. But I think what companies like Uber and Lyft and Fedoro and the like have done is they've pushed these long-standing issues into public consciousness because the work these types of works perform is so visible. Right? I mean, anyone can hire an Uber driver for cheap. And so this type of work becomes highly visible very quickly over the last you know decade or so, or even less um, in, in a lot of cities. And also, I'd say because this gig economy relies upon cool technology, it, it plays into another growing fear that people have that you know technology and AI are going to eventually replace jobs. So uh, I think just going to your point, the, 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 the new platform digital gig economy has attracted uh, what you could probably say is outsized attention considering the relatively small share of workers who rely upon it. The numbers that I saw from Statistics Canada put it at about 8% of Canadians who perform work, uh, gig work in some form. But I think there's a concern that the Uberization of work represents a larger troubling trend. In the same way, you know, about a decade or two decades ago, we used to talk about McJobs. You know, the concern that, that you know, McJobs were replacing good paying full-time jobs. So what what what's the concern with uh, with with gig? Well, I think the you know the, the what we used to talk about with McJobs and with with gig work now it's a common thread, which is that the standard model of employment that you know that we certainly we used to strive for in the in the late twentieth century, which was characterized by full time good paying jobs is under threat and it's being replaced by precarious forms of work like the gig work where people don't have guaranteed hours where their pay is low where they can you know be terminated at any time uh, where they have few benefits event you know few or no benefits where there's no pensions right um, so the concern in the gig the gig economy is that it re- is represents kind of a, a trend or even a slippery slope towards the model we might be headed in, which isn't a good model. It's it's a model that creates precarious work relative to where we would want to be, which is, um, you know, better paying jobs that provide a living wage. And so, how do we how do we extend protections to this uh, growing group of workers while we also aim to protect the other workers in our economy? Well, this is this is a big question, right? And I think. Uh, and as there's a wide range of views of how how you should best regulate gig work. And I mean, probably the easiest legislative design fix would be to do what the recent Ontario Changing Workplaces Review um, suggested, which is simply to extend the reach of employment related statutes to all dependent contractors. Right. Uh, most gig workers are probably already dependent contractors. Not all of them, but but I think there's a good share of people who we are calling gig workers would already meet our definition of, of a dependent contractor, which is an immediate intermediate category between pure independent contractors who are running a business and pure employees that we introduced in Canadian collective bargaining legislation decades ago. Excuse me, I'm going to interrupt, yep. but what, what would the features of a dependent contractor be? Well, a dependent contractor is someone who you know looks a little bit like um, an entrepreneur in the sense that they don't report to a workplace. Usually they don't have to, um, they don't have to check in punch in and punch out. They have a little more discretion than a typical employee in terms of how they perform 
their work. There isn't a supervisor looking over their shoulders. So they have greater independence than, uh, you know, say a typical Walmart cashier, for example. Um, and the classic examples were, you know, owner operator truck drivers, for example, who own their own vehicles um, and they're on the road. So there's no supervisor with them. But they work purely for one business. So all of their work, uh, they're dependent upon one business for their work. And so the idea of a dependent contractor was that, look, if, if, if labor and employment laws are designed to protect um, vulnerable workers who don't have much bargaining power, then don't get caught up in this sort of technical legal definition of an employee. Look at whether they're actually economically dependent for the way in which they earn their living. And if they are, then they should be entitled to certain benefits that are available to employees. So it became an intermediate category. But it's interesting, we, we extended dependent contractor to labor relations legislation in Canada, you know, 40 years ago. But we didn't do the same when it comes to other statutes. So we saw earlier this year that the Ontario Labor Relations Board ruled that Fedoro couriers are dependent contractors. And they're likely, the board is likely to rule the same for Uber black drivers in a case that's before the board right now. Right. Well, if, if Fedoro um, couriers um, and Uber drivers are dependent contractors under labor relations legislation, then it would be you know, relatively easy to just take the same definition of dependent contractor we have in collective bargaining legislation and apply it to other employment-related statutes. And presumably the effect of that would be to simply sweep in most gig workers under existing employment legislation. That's not uh, that's not a silver bullet answer. It's not going to solve all the problems of low paid gig work because uh, for a number of reasons, right? One is that look, there we already have huge problems with non compliance with a lot of this employment legislation to start with, even for employees who actually report to a workplace. And so when you take these compliance issues um, and you suddenly apply it to workers who actually don't have a workplace, you know, they're working out of their cars. Um, there's going to be, you know, potentially even more difficult issues of compliance there. But there's also, you know, I think design issues that you'd have to consider. Um, then these are, these are solvable, but I think you need to turn your mind to them. So, you know, for example, if you take a typical uh, Uber driver um, or someone driving, you know, that sort of doing that sort of work, you know, you might have someone sitting in their car on the side of the road waiting for a customer to be sent to them from any of four different companies at once, right? Because they have all their platforms turned on, right? Well, if, if you just sweep them into the Employment Standards Act, for example, um, by adding dependent contractor, then there's a question, for example, of, well, who Who's the employer of that gig worker when they're sitting at the side of the road in their car waiting for a call from four companies? Who owes the minimum wage, right? When is a gig worker working, right? Is it as soon as they turn on their app or is it only after they accept a fare, right? Now, these, you know, these are um, technical questions that can be solved. But my point I'm trying to make is, you know, you could just sweep in all gig workers into existing legislation by simply by, you know, redefining the the how who the statute applies to but you know there are these issues that you that you need to think about and you know if you just sweep them in then you're just leaving it to the labor boards to to sort of fit uh you know round answers into square pegs so i think you know the other argument the other possibility for gig uh, regulating gig work is to set up a separate 
regime for digital platform work. You know, so rather than just sweep them into existing laws, you create a new regime and you scan the legal landscape and you decide which laws should apply to those workers and which shouldn't. And this is an idea that Professor Harry Arthurs floated um, in his um, review of federal labor standards uh, back uh, in 2007 that we called Fairness at Work. And he, entered, he suggested the idea of creating a new category of autonomous worker. And the idea here is to build a legal model from a clean slate, right? So, and then there's benefits to this idea and I think risks too. I mean, the benefits would be, you you know, if you start from a clean slate and you ask yourself, well, what sort of legal regime should regulate gig workers? You're not constrained by 20th century parameters about what an employment relationship looks like, right? So w- we could build a model that treats a work, a gig worker like an employee for some purposes where we think that makes sense. And as a contractor for other purposes, without worrying that this creates inconsistencies with the way we do things, right? So I'll, I'll give, give, you, give you one example. Okay. Uh, years ago, um, I used to represent taxi drivers a lot. And they wanted to be covered by workers' compensation in case they got injured. And they wanted a right to unionize and to act collectively. They wanted some form of regulation of basic income or at least some way to regulate how much they could be charged by the dispatch company. They wanted unemployment insurance and then maybe some seniority rights, but they absolutely did not want to be employees for the purposes of tax legislation, right? Because they write off expenses. Uh, and they, they weren't particularly concerned about pushing for hours of work legislation because they wanted flexibility in when they worked and how they worked, right? So their concern wasn't about being called an employee. It was that they wanted a system of rules that provided some necessary protections for them while maintaining other benefits that are associated with being more independent. Um, so in theory, you could develop an autonomous worker category that's designed to address specific concerns of gig workers. And you could look across a wide range of existing legal rules and decide which ones should apply. That's got to be pretty d- difficult because I think one of the issues that uh, we see with a lot of autonomous, quote unquote, autonomous workers, gig workers, is that they have a wide uh, range of uh, desires and uh, in terms of the kinds of protections and the type of independence that they need. So how difficult is it for us to to package all these people into one category? Yeah, and I think I think that's a good point. The way I would think about this is you you know, you scan the legal landscape and you consult and you figure out what rules should apply and it, it's even more complicated in Canada because you'd have to have cooperation between the federal government and the provinces. Um, because uh, presumably a lot of or some of the rules you would want to apply to gig workers would be federally regulated rules. You know, you'd, you'd want to look at, for example, their coverage under um, employment insurance legislation and CPP and how they're going to be treated under tax law. Right. So you'd, you'd want the federal government to um, be involved in protecting certain rights for for certain autonomous workers. Um, but you would then need provincial governments to you know, to be looking at the statutes within their realm, employment standards, worker comp, occupational health and safety. And, you know, and the point you're getting at is that not all gig workers are the same, right? So, right. you know, we, we spend a lot of time focusing on digital transportation workers like Uber, but, you know, we've long had, you know, you know, thousands of journalists, for example, and other workers who 
you know, could be caught up in this in ways they don't want to be, right? And I think this goes, um, you know, to, um, you know, another point I, I was about to make, which is that there are risks associated with, with creating an autonomous worker regime. Um, Such as? Well, I think, you know, the concern is that what's going to happen is you create a sort of secondary legal system that has fewer or weaker rights than are available uh, under the primary system of regulating work. And that if you do that, you're going to create an incentive for some businesses to perhaps reorganize their work to sweep more people into this sort of lower tier of standards. Um, and so, you know, this is a concern. Uh, and, and it, you know, it came up, um, I mean, I think what you would need to do as a government is, you know, just going to your, back to your point, if you're going to do this, if you're going to create an autonomous worker category, you'd have to firstly have a very clear definition of who it applies to, who are you targeting? For example, it could just apply to digital transportation workers, uh, but nobody else. And maybe you need a different system for, you know, artists and journalists, uh, who are, you know, writers who are working at home. And then you also need to consider this concern that, you know, if you're going to create a secondary uh, system that you don't want to create an incentive for work, for businesses to try and uh, get into a lower tier. So you want your, your autonomous worker to have, you know, a rigorous level of protections so that there's no real value to trying to get into that system um, to lower worker standards, right? So you want a model that's different, but not inferior. Have you seen models that work uh, elsewhere in other jurisdictions? Look, if you think about, you know, it's, it's a bit of a fiction to think about the idea that we have um, a system of regulation that applies to employees and then a different one that applies to not to people who aren't employees. Because in truth, um, we have a whole bunch of systems already, right? If you flip through any... Um, employment standards legislation in Canada, you'll see there's a whole bunch of exceptions and special rules and special regimes for different type of workers. We already do this. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so, you know, what we're talking about here is, you know, like creating a separate regulation for, for gig work. Like, so we have special bargaining rules for artists, for example, under the federal sector, where we've created, you know, these are people who are not employees, they're independent contractors, but the federal government has been able to create a system of collective bargaining for independent contractors who are artists. Well, there's an example of where a government looked at a particular type of work and said, well, this doesn't really fit properly into the same model that we use for regulating Walmart cashiers. So maybe we can create a different system that fits better for these types of workers, right? And th that would be the thought process you'd have to go through. Is, there, is it conceivable that there's a future for uh, collective bargaining in this, in this environment, in this changing environment? Yeah, I, I think there is, but it goes to, well, let me put it this way, right? If, if, you know, we had uh, the Fedoro drivers who just unionized in Ontario, right? So they went under the, the traditional model that we use for collective bargaining. They organized, the union organized a majority of workers. There was a vote held, a majority of the workers voted to be in the union and the union was certified. Now we all know that what happened next, Fedoro shut down its Canadian operations mm -hmm. entirely and left, Right. And so, um, but if they hadn't done that, right, if they, if they had stuck around, then the workers, the union would have sat down and tried to bargain a collective agreement. And I think we spend a lot of time debating whether 
gig workers, our employees or not. In other words, do they even get in the door for these legislative protections? Um, but there is a really, you know, a big question lurking in the background that we haven't got to yet, which is, look, even if the workers are gig workers are able to unionize, are they actually going to be able to bargain a collective agreement that that is decent and that lasts? And I have real questions about whether our existing model will ever work for those people. Um, it w- certainly wasn't designed. If you go back to my opening point, you know, we designed a model to facilitate collective bargaining in uh, a car plant with 2,000 workers where they all report to a single factory, right? And then, so if you take a gig worker, you know, where there are cars and basically anybody can become an Uber employee by clicking an app. Well, how do you, for example, organize a strike of gig Mm -hmm. workers, right? What's the picket line? So there's real issues about whether you, you know, the current model that we designed to facilitate collective bargaining in factories could ever work for gig workers. I think you would need something different. And then you're into the question, well, what sort of model? And, you know, the, that's part of a much larger debate that, that we're having about the future of collective bargaining law, you know, and whether the Wagner model we adopted in the 1940s can work for these different types of work. And I, I don't think it can, frankly. Um, I think you would need to have a different sort of a model that, you know, allows workers, dependent contractors to come together in some way, you know, that doesn't necessarily depend upon, for example, a majority system or that has special rules where you, you know, sort of bargain at a sectoral level, for example, with gig companies, you bargain sector-based collective agreements. And these are real challenges and and they're hard, you know, we're, we're thinking about them. And I say we, you know, academics and even governments are thinking about, well, what's the future of collective bargaining? What sorts of different models. Let me ask you. So you were, I think, I believe you were a member of uh, Harvard's uh, labor and work life program, clean slate project. And, and that was something, uh, I think you might refer to that a little bit earlier in our conversation. If you were to work on a clean slate, how would you, by what first principles would you start designing uh, a new, a new legal framework? I mean, it's a big question, but I'm putting you on the spot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the Harvard clean slate people, uh, that report, um, you know, kind of began from from the starting point of uh, that it's all about um, empowering working people throughout society, right? And so, it's it's labor law is part of that discussion, but it's also you know about electoral politics and you know considering the entire landscape. But if you if you focus in on on labor law, right? It's you know it, what they what Clean Slate said is, look, you can fix the Wagner model for the sorts of workplaces where it works, right? Because it works pretty well in large, you know, industrial workplaces. So there's no reason to scrap it. But the problem is, you know, in, in Canada, as I mentioned earlier, you you know, you've got a situation where 85% of workers in the private sector are non-union, right? And so the model doesn't work. Now, we know from surveys that um, that is not because workers aren't interested in collective bargaining. We know that workers... Uh, a large percentage of workers who are not in unions are actually interested in being one or in having some sort of collective representation. So we can say that our collective bargaining model doesn't doesn't work. There's an there's an unfulfilled demand for collective voice. Um, and so, you know, I think from from a Canadian perspective, one of the things that I think we you know we have to think about um, is, uh, and certainly I've written about it, is is this idea that. 
Um, you need to start from a basic starting point where workers have a, a right to um, come together collectively and face their employer, right? So you, you need to be able to um, have a bunch of workers who come together as a group and say, look, we're not happy with our working conditions. Um, and they can't be punished for doing that, right? Well, in the Canadian system that dates from the 1940s, the law protects a right of workers to engage in what is known as trade union activities. So they can join a union and they can, you know, try and unionize and they can't be punished for it. Um, and if a majority of workers join a union, then the employer has to bargain with them. But uh, what we don't have in Canada is our, just a general freestanding right to uh, engage in concerted activities, engage in collective activities. Um, and I think in, in Canada, we're going to head, that's one of the changes we're going to see. So if you think about the big campaigns that have happened in the United States over the last, you know, 10 years, you're thinking about, you know, mass fast food strikes and, you know, strikes um, in support of uh, the, um, 50, the fight for 15, right? Well, most of these strikes are taking place by non-union workers, right? McDonald's workers and, and mm -hmm. so forth. Well, in the United States, they have a right to engage in concerted activities that protects them um, for engaging in, uh, in certain strikes, even if they're non-union. Well, we don't have anything like that. Um, and so I think, you know, you'd want to start, if you're thinking about a model that protects gig workers, for example, you would want to have some sort of right of drivers to engage in concerted activities without being fired, right? So right now, if a bunch of Uber drivers you know, decide they want to protest and about working conditions, Uber can just take them off the system and there's no way for them to complain. Um, well, that, that can't be, uh, that's obviously not a good system of freedom of association. There has to be some rules that protect the right of workers to come together as a starting point. And then you build up from that, right? Well, let's say you have a right of workers to come together and uh, present demands to their employer without being uh, fired for it. Um, from there, what, what obligation do you put on the employer to bargain with those people? And then, you know, what are the rights to strike? So you have to start from the, from a foundation of a right to act collectively and then build up from there. Whereas our current model, um, begins you know, and ends with the idea of, uh, uh, trade union activities. Um, and most of the rights are only, uh, available to workers when a majority of them want to join a union. Um, and that's creating a, an obstacle for the majority of Canadian workers who want to act collectively in some way, but are unable to. So I think we're going to have discussions about, about these different types of bargaining moving forward. And the way I see it going is you're going to have debates about new systems of collective bargaining that you can say either, you know, some of them move down from our current model in the sense that they don't depend upon majority representation by a single union. So you're talking about things like minority unions and works councils that are not dependent upon majority union support. And then you're going to have other proposals that move up from the Wagner model, meaning that they promote a system of bargaining at the industry or sectoral level. So imagine uh, a system where you don't bargain with a single franchise of a McDonald's, but you bargain all fast food restaurants in the city of Toronto, for example. Um, and, and there's, you know, obviously a lot of talk about this and there's a lot of support for it in theory, but in terms of designing a model that will actually work, uh, it's tricky and it's going to require a sea change of culture in the way we think about things because we are so used to thinking about the world through our 20th century collective bargaining model. 
How would a how would a minority union model work? I, I, that one I have a hard time wrapping my head around. For example, well, you know, obviously there are limits to how effective it will be because um, you know the, the minority union, you know, so it doesn't have as much power as a majority union, right? Right. Let me give you a classic example that you know I've certainly written about in my blog. So we all know a lot of us know about uh, a giant Toyota plant um, out in Cambridge, Ontario. Right. And Unifor and before that, the CAW have for years been trying to organize them. And let's say I can't remember the numbers, but let's say there's 3000 employees at at that company. And the Unifor has been able to sign up 47 percent of them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, under our system, so 47 percent of the workers want uh, Unifor to represent them and 53 don't. Well, under our system, Unifor has no right to represent those workers. Toyota can just say go to hell and that's the end of it. And so, you know, in a system, that's an unusual system by international standards, right? It's really only, you know, a function of the Wagner model that we use in Canada and the United States where uh, a union that represents 47% of the workplace has no statutory right to bargain, right? Well, so a minority union system would say, okay, well, maybe a majority union has, has more rights you know, for example, maybe there are limits on the right of minority unions uh, workers to strike. Maybe there aren't, but you can talk about that. But, you know, if you have 47% support or whatever you want to put it at, 20%, um, I think I think uh, in the clean slate Harvard proposal, they propose 25%. So any union that has 25% support, the employer has to bargain with that union. Right. So you sit down and you bargain with that union on behalf of their own members, right? Well, can a union that represents 25 to 49% of workers in a workplace bargain anything decent? Well, maybe, right? Or, or maybe they can, you know, translate that, um, that percentage of workers into a higher percentage um, by doing good things and providing certain benefits to their, to their membership, right? So the idea is the employer can't just say, go to hell, to uh, any union that represents less than a majority, there are certain obligations for them to bargain at least on behalf of their own members. Um, and then maybe unions can, can build up from there, right? So it's, a, it's about um, challenging the current system, which is a winner takes all. It's a, it, you, know, you, you either have a majority or you have nothing system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that's the way they do it in a lot of other countries, right? Britain, for example, a union doesn't need to have majority support to have a right to collect bargaining. You know, speaking of other countries, I, I think one of the complicating factors in all of this is uh, that we do uh, operate in a globalized economy. How difficult is it for us to think through employment and labor law reform in a global economy? Um globalization exercises a certain amount of pressure on our labor relations here. So how does that unfold in the coming years? Well, I think certainly since Canada entered into free trade agreements, uh, especially with the United States, um, you know, beginning in the late 1980s, um, those agreements um, have influenced the context of our labor policy debates um, in, a, in real ways. So, you know, for example, any time that uh, a, you know, a liberal or an NDP government in Canada has tried to uh, beef up labor rights, they are met by uh, strong opposition by the business community and by conservative politicians who argue that, look, if you introduce those laws, you're going to make us uncompetitive relative to the United States, let alone Mexico and China, just the United States, right? If we need to compete with the United States for jobs. 
Um, and that's been a powerful argument. And it has led to, you know, you know, if you think about our system of collective bargaining in Canada for, for years and years, most provinces uh, and jurisdictions in Canada um, counted union membership votes by a card, just, you know, mm-hmm. union membership cards. There was no vote requirement. Um, and then, you know, from, from the, you know, late eight, 1980s, Onward, the, there's been a shift towards mandatory votes, which make it harder for unions to win. And the argument is always about, well, and it's partially about, um, you know, a democracy arguments, and it's partially about the need to compete with the United States where um, they have mandatory votes. So there's a downward pressure on our labor laws um, caused by um, the fact that we are right beside, you know, this ginormous economic behemoth that has lower labor standards than us. So this is a, this is an issue. And I think it's, you know, it is interesting to watch what happens in the United States right now with the Biden administration. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of what the politics of, of his presidency might be? Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he has promised uh, a lot of pretty strong labor law, labor and employment law reforms. He has promised to extend collective bargaining rights, not only to dependent contractors, but to independent contractors. So he's talking about, you know, systems of bargaining by independent contractors that would be backed by statutory obligations. He's talking about um, introducing card check union system and repealing the uh, system of mandatory votes in the uh, National Labor Relations Act. He's talking about abolishing um, right to work laws in the United States, which require unions to represent uh, non-paying non-members, right? Well, if, if, now, whether he can do that, of course, whether any of these changes will come into it, you have to be a, a little bit skeptical because they haven't been able to pass um, labor law reform in the United States since the 1950s. But, you know, if, if, you get con- if the Democrats get control of the Senate um, in January, it's possible that some of these changes will come through. And I think that would have important effects on um, our own labor policy debates, right? If, if the United States suddenly had equal or, you know, labor laws that are equal or even superior to those in Canada, then it undercuts the argument that we um, can't have these laws because it'll drive uh, companies into the United States, right? Um, and so, you know, I think Canadians should be really interested in, in watching what happens in the United States, where they are also you know, having these debates. In fact, they've been having them much longer than we have about how to change our labor and employment law systems that are based in the 20th century, because their their system has been eroded much quicker than our own. So they're way ahead of us in thinking about these issues, but they are just stuck by uh, politics that make it really difficult for progressive labor law changes to actually get implemented. Uh, let's talk about Canada a little bit. Uh, how have our courts fared in shaping uh, employment and labor law? Well, I think if you you know if you talk to labor and employment law people, the first thing they would point to uh, in answering that question would be um, the Supreme Court of Canada's recent expansion of freedom of association under the Charter over the last twenty years. They you know the Supreme Court overturned its earlier jurisprudence and recognized a constitutional right to collective bargaining and to strike, um, you know, and that gets a lot of attention and, you know, unions considered those a big win. 
but I think it's an open question how much those um, apparent victories for labor will matter in terms of actually improving working conditions for Canadian workers or shaping the future of the law in this area. I mean, most of those benefits in the charter cases go to public sector workers. Um, so certainly the, the, the charter jurisprudence will make it more difficult for governments to strip collective bargaining rights moving forward. But I think it's difficult to point to many examples of how those charter victories have translated into actual better lives for private sector workers where, you know, the real concerns lie. Um, you know, a Walmart cashier isn't benefiting much from, uh, you know, a ruling that the charter protects uh, freedom of, uh, you know, protects a right to collective bargaining when they really have no practical means of ever accessing collective bargaining. Um, so, um, so uh, you know, w- while the courts have certainly played a, a major role in revamping what freedom of association means, I'm not sure that's going to matter very much to most working Canadians. I think the other way, the other place where you see the role of the courts being important in employment law is, you know, the courts view led by the Supreme Court of Canada and has trickled down to lower courts, their recognition of the fact that employment is um, characterized usually by an inequality of bar- uh, bargaining power. And you see this this realization in the development of the common law and in courts interpretation of employment related statutes particularly over the last you know 20 25 years for example you're seeing it in you know in the in the willingness of the courts recently to strike down um, contract clauses that attempt to contract out of the implied obligation for employers to provide reasonable notice Right. So lots of employers uh, attempt to add clauses that say that all we have to do is provide you with the minimum amount of notice in employment standards legislation. And courts have really scrutinized those clauses um, and struck them down in a lot of cases. Um, and often when they do so, they point to the fact that employers have all the power to write these contract terms. And so we're going to we're going to guard an employee's right to reasonable notice uh, very strictly. Um, and you see it um, recently in the in the really important case called uh, Heller versus Uber, where the Supreme Court and the Ontario Court of Appeals uh, struck down a mandatory arbitration clause um, that would have they would have succeeded. It would basically have blocked the right of workers to uh, bring complaints under the employment standards legislation to a tribunal, and it would have blocked class action lawsuits. So again, the court has pointed out there that employers have most of the power here. And so I think this concern about inequality of bargaining power has really played an important role in, um, in you know, for the courts in protecting employees from you know, from potential changes to the employment contract model that could be really bad for them, you know, such as blocking class actions. And you see it in the way they interpret, courts interpret um, statutes and also tribunals, right? They take a broad, purposeful interpretation um, to the statutes, again, keeping in mind that the purpose of these laws is to protect vulnerable workers. And so we may see, for example, um, you know, in the Heller case, which is now moving forward, uh, the issue is whether Uber drivers are employees under the Employment Standards Act, which does not include a dependent contractor. And we could very well find that the tribunal rules that gig workers are employees even when they are not, you know, even when the statute doesn't include dependent contractors. And the way you would get there is by saying we got to interpret the statute really broadly to sweep in as many people as we as we can. Right. So I think that you know the courts are playing an important role in the discussion and they are, you know, they are 
um, recognizing the need to protect vulnerable workers. But, you know, the courts really aren't in a position, I don't think, to fundamentally change our employment law model. That, that would be that would be the lawmakers. And so if you're I mean, nobody has a crystal ball, but uh, how do you see that playing out? Do you you seem to hint earlier that the feds have to work with the provinces to some extent to address uh, the many different facets to employment and or protection of workers, I guess. I know the federal government is thinking about these issues and, um, you know, the current federal government sees a potential and sort of leading a national discussion on how to better protect, you know, gig workers, for example. Um, but they're limited in what they can do, right? Because of the way we divide up jurisdiction in this country. Um, you know, and, and, and it's, it's a challenge in Canada in the sense that we're quite, we're not as polarized as the United States, obviously, but, but we are polarized, you know, and, it, and one of the things that's happened, you know, since the 1990s is it's really difficult for um, a government that's interested in advancing the law to protect workers to make, you know, dramatic changes that have any staying power, right? So what we see is, and it goes the other way as well, right? You, you know, you we're seeing sort of, you know, NDP and sometimes liberal governments making changes that, you know, swing the pendulum in favor of worker rights. And then a conservative government gets elected and they undo it. And then conservatives swing the, you know, reduce labor rights and a liberal NDP government gets back in and they change it back. And so I think this is a real challenge, right? That there's no political, you know, in the old days, like the one thing about the 1940s and 1950s and even into the 60s, all three of our major political parties generally agreed that the law should uh, protect uh, workers and at least advance collective bargaining rights. And that certainly changed by the late 1990s. And so it's really difficult. And, you know, there's a general belief um, that we need to update our models to better protect workers for the new ways in which work is being performed. Um, when I say a general belief among, you know, sort of you know, academics and economists and so forth. But uh, that doesn't necessarily translate into politi a political willingness um, to make those changes. Um, and that's going to be, that's going to be a real challenge moving forward. We're going to, we're going to need, and that's why I say it, it's important to keep an eye on what the United States do. If, if, if Biden, you know, makes dramatic changes, um, that fundamentally raise the statutory floor for workers in the United States, that could change the discussion here. But, um, you know, it, it is difficult for, you know, Canadian governments that want to, you know, for example, introduce brand new collective bargaining models that will expand collective bargaining to to do that on their own, um, because there'll be huge pressures against that move from from you know conservatives and and more importantly, probably the the business sector. So, it's a real challenge, I think, moving forward as to um, how we're going to make these changes. And, and I'm, I'm a little skeptical that we're going to see any sudden major shifts in employment and labor law in the near future. I think the changes will be minor. Um, you know, I do think that we will see in terms of collective bargaining law, I think we will see the introduction of a right to concerted activities that will come into play in Canada. And, and that could lead to, to new, you know, new ways of workers um, acting collectively. But it will take time and it won't be, you know, it certainly won't 
fundamentally alter the power balance in society. I'd, l- I'd like to close out with one question, though, because we did start, I, I, I was asking about the pandemic and how that might have changed the conversation. And uh, do you think it has changed the conversation? Because there has been a lot of talk about uh, this whole phenomenon of working from home, and I don't know if people are going to end up uh, returning to the office uh, en masse, but has it raised the issue? Has it introduced new issues uh, to worry about? Uh, how does it play into all of this? Well, I think it's fair to believe that some changes will come about because of because of COVID. Um, a lot of knowledge-based businesses will permit or even require more uh, workers to work from home to save money on office space, for example. I know that law, some law firms are already talking about doing that. Uh, and, you know, there's a possibility with fewer people coming to workplaces that even more workers could be categorized as independent contractors since whether a, a person you know has a workplace at a company is one of the key factors in considering the employment status test. Uh, I can imagine employers testing electronic surveillance systems to monitor home workers' activities, and that could give rise to, you know, issues about privacy and tensions around privacy and the balance of an employer's right to um, know what a worker is doing against the rights of privacy. Um, I think there will be issues relating to calculating working hours that, you know, that really aren't that much dissimilar to those issues arising with gig workers. You know, when is someone at work when their work is in the bedroom? Um, you know, unions will push for information about home addresses and email addresses um, if more people start working from home, because obviously a union organizer can't stand outside, you know, in a parking lot, handing out flyers when nobody's in the parking lot. So, you know, there are there are areas of employment and labor law where uh, a shift towards homework will, will challenge existing legal rules. Um, but I don't think those will, you know, that our law can't adjust to those problems. No, but th- that said, I mean, I, I don't think we should overestimate how much COVID will change our labor markets. I expect most things will return to pre-pandemic norms pretty quickly. Most workers will still need to come to work because that's where the work is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people want to come to work. Uh, they like the social aspect of it. You know, it's just as likely that people will have realized during this period how much they actually hate working from home. <laughs> they can't, they won't, you know, they can't wait to get back to work. But, you know, and I think, I think COVID has uh, exposed uh, some longstanding issues in some areas of work law that will come under pressure for reform, right? And so these aren't new issues, but COVID has definitely highlighted them and brought them to public consciousness. And I'm thinking about, for example, um, you know, our overly complicated and restrictive unemployment insurance model, for example, right? I think there'll be growing pressure. You can already see it to simplify that process and open it up to more workers by changing the formula of insurable employment hours. So, and the federal government has already signaled that they're, they're interested in maybe revisiting that model. Um, I think the fact that we have a very poor public childcare system and we have a complete lack of paid sick days in many of our jurisdictions has also been exposed as a serious problem that's going to come under pressure for change. And we're starting mm-hmm. to see those discussions. So I think, you know, we will see some, you know, some changes in the cracks of our current system that have been exposed by COVID. Um, 
you know, but you know, I, I, I don't think that this experience, uh, you know, that it's going to probably last about, you know, 15 to 18 months is going to fundamentally change the way work is done in Canada. Um, you know, I think it's just exposed some areas where we're going to need some improvements yeah. moving forward. Well, thank you. Uh, I've been talking to David Dory, uh, law professor of labor and employment law at uh, York University in Toronto. Thanks so much for uh, helping us get a better understanding of how we need to move, move forward on some of these issues. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes, and to hear us in French, listen to our Juriste Branché podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues, and if you have any comments or feedback and suggestions, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on our Facebook page. And check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. A big thank you to our podcast editor, Anne-Catherine Desulmé, and thank you all for listening to this month's episode of After the Pandemic. We'll catch you next month. <laughs>